Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. Thanks, Landon. Okay, so uh, this is the concluding class of this module, which has been focused, if, if, if all the classes are the spokes in the wheel, the wheel is things related to the church, okay? So we've talked about um, the Word and, it's, and, and, and maybe preaching. I wasn't here for Jonathan's, but again, thanks to Jonathan for teaching on that. And fellowship and prayer and the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the sacraments, right? Um, and then... Um, Last week, we talked about, what did we talk about? Discipline, the authority of the church. Right? All of these things are created, or are spokes in a wheel revolving around the church. You guys see that? So this last, this last week, we're going to be talking about worship. And specifically, the worship of the church. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about worship from a little bit higher view. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> there is nothing more important, nothing more important in the life of the church than its worship. You can trace the spiritual health, the spiritual vitality of God's people throughout the ages by the worship of the people of God. The more people are engaged and invested in right worship, the better the spiritual life and health of the church is. They reflect and affect each other, right? If you're going to a good church with right worship, your life will be <laughs> disciplined to go in the right direction, right? You see how they affect each other and play into each other? Nope, nobody's listening yet because we're all tired. All right. <laughs> No, I'm Jordan. I just lost a little weight, man. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I had I had no less than five people, five women, ask me if I was disappointed. I'm like, disappointed with what? <laughs> How am I supposed to take that? I don't care. <laughs> Sarah Disown, was it you who said you look 10 years younger? Somebody said, you look 10 years younger. And I thought, I better grow it back in the next five months. <laughs> All right, so um, listen. Godly, vigorous, engaged worship is a sign of godly, virtuous living. It's a sign of it. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this rule. There are people that are here, and they raise their hands, and they sing, and their lives outside of Sunday morning are not honoring to God. But vigorous, engaged worship is a sign of virtuous, godly living. <clears throat> That's why there's such a correlation between Israel worshiping on the high places in a negative example, and making concessions in their worship, and then 
intermarrying with other people. You notice if you think back on the Old Testament that, you know, often when Israel's living is going in a bad direction, their worship is, is right on par with their li- right? They're, they're, they're a matched pair, you know? Intermarriage with foreign nations and worshiping of pagan gods seem to go hand in hand. All right, so we are going to discuss corporate worship, and that's, that's the heart of the matter that I want to talk to you this, about this morning. <clears throat> and by corporate worship, I mean what we do when we gather here on Sundays. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about what worship is and why we worship. And we're going to talk about these two things together. When I bought a house a few months ago, one of the projects that I had to do was um, tear out a bunch of bushes along the front of the house. There were like 21 or 22 bushes all in a row in front of the porch, and I wanted to tear them out. And so the very first thing I did was I got a pole chain from John Johnson over here, lugged that thing over to my house, and wrapped it around the roots of one of the trees, and I hooked it up to the tractor, and I thought, I'm going to show this Bush, who's boss? <laughs> I rev the RPMs up to 5,000. <laughs> and I, it, you'll appreciate this. I step on the hydrostatic drive forward, <laughs> you know, and I'm going, rah, 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 kaboom, and I go back in my chair. Oh, it didn't do a thing. <laughs> I mean, that bush taught me a lesson real quick. <laughs> uh, and I, I was humbled immediately. I thought I was going to rip this sucker out, and it, it ripped me out of my seat. <clears throat> and I say that to say all those bushes, those 21 bushes, had been planted in 1975 or 1976. And they were about two feet away from each other. And they were about eight or nine feet high in the air. And they had all grown interconnected. You imagine a nine-foot-high bush that's planted two feet next to another bush root system. All those bushes were interconnected. And so I have 21 roots in the ground now. (laughs) So if anyone wants to come out, (laughs) uh, I had to cut all those branches off down low. And I still, it was a ton of work just to pull them out from each other because they were all caught and wrapped up together. And the reason I say that is like those bushes, What worship is and why we worship, those two ideas, are very, very interconnected realities. What worship is and why we worship. It's kind of like those bushes. I'm dealing with them all together because you can't deal with them as, oh, this little bush over here, and now we're going to go over here and do this little bush. They're all interconnected. So why do we worship? Why do we worship? Well, simple. We, We worship because we were created to worship. We can't help but worship. We can't avoid it. We can't stop it. We can direct our worship towards one thing and away from another thing, but we cannot cease worshiping. It's in our blood. It's, it's who we are. Every man and woman worships something, and whatever he worships is his God. So we're going to start with that as the premise. Everyone worships. Everyone worships something. You cannot help it. You will worship something. I will worship something. Your neighbor is worshiping something this morning with their life. We can't help it. And whatever you worship is your God. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have any other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of that which is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's Exodus 20. It's on your sheet. Actually, Landon, would you grab me an outline, please, from the back? I, I normally grab one of those. It's kind of helpful. <clears throat> now notice, Exodus 20. I, <clears throat> God does not give the option for a... Yeah, thank you, Landon. Thanks, Mr. James. Mr. J one man's trash is another man's treasure. This is going to help us end on time. Okay. <clears throat> God does not give us the option for a godless existence. He says, worship me, I'm the true God, do not have any other false gods before me. Here is God, the potter, speaking to his people, the clay, to you and me, knowing their nature and their sinfulness and saying, you're tempted to go there, don't go there. I am the Lord your God. I'm going to go on. <clears throat> Philippians for many walk, of whom I often told you, this is Paul speaking to the church of Philippi, and now I tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Well, why would I read this verse? I just read from Exodus where God says, don't have any other gods before me. Now I'm reading from the book of Philippians. Why am I reading this? So I'm reading this to say, that Paul is addressing the church, and he is saying here in this passage that there is such a thing as men worshiping the God of their own desires, all right? Remember, I'm, I'm just trying to highlight a few scriptures after making the initial statement that everyone worships. Everyone is worshiping something. God said, don't have any other gods before me. It wasn't, he didn't say, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of slavery. Remember that I'm a God and don't live in a godless reality. He said, don't have any other gods before me. Now here's Paul in the New Testament saying, listen, don't be like these people who have rejected the church, who rejected the truth, whose God is their appetite or whose God is their bellies. Paul is saying that some men's God is their stomachs, their own lustful, craven desires. We're going to go on. Acts. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I've also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. And he goes on to, to preach the gospel to them. <clears throat> it's often the case that those that don't know God, those that are Pagans will worship and serve something that they don't even know. The men of Athens were worshiping in something in ignorance. Now they were worshiping many gods, but Paul's making the point, you're worshiping, a, you have this altar to the unknown god. <clears throat> this might seem like a strange idea. How could, and this is a question I'd like to hear from you guys, how could someone worship and serve a god that they're unaware of. Paul, Paul's making that point. You've got this, this 
stone erected to some power, some deity that you don't even know what it is. I'm going to declare it. There are men today that are serving and worshiping a God that they don't even know what it is. But their life is, is given to it. Yeah, what, what, what might be something like that today, Jay? I, mean, <coughs> I would say like pornography. The idol worshipers, people that aren't Christians that are doing that are serving idols. Okay, so, they're, yeah, so, they're, so pornography is idolatry. And, and, and what might that, the God of the, that they're worshiping be behind the pornography? Well, okay, M- Micah? Okay, yeah. Death. Right? Okay, what, what might something else be? <clears throat> I was talking with a guy in a hospital just a couple of days ago, and he was saying that his daughter's, his daughter-in-law's father had done very well. When he was young, he came from an extremely poor home. And from a young age, that man's goal was to be a multimillionaire. Driven, young guy, I think one of ten kids. Um, had a lot of drive. And he's now, you know, 65, and he's a multimillionaire. But this, this friend was telling me that his, what would that be relationally, his daughter-in-law's father, whatever that is, has realized that he's given his entire life away. He sold it. He has no relationships with any of his children. And so this, this friend of mine said, all he's doing now is saying, take my money, take my money, take my money, take my money, to try and bring his kid. There's an example of a guy who served a God. He didn't even know what he was serving his whole life. And now he's realized the cost of service to that, to that God, to that idea. And he's saying, oh, I don't like it, you know. When you're old and you're looking at death, m- money doesn't do much for you, all right? So this still happens today. There are many people who, I'm the, I don't believe in God, I don't, who would say I don't serve God. I'm, they're, they're worshiping a God. They're going after God. They may not know, be able to identify it as such, but they are. And this is what the scripture says. <clears throat> okay, so professing <clears throat> to be wise, they became fools. Again, Paul, Romans. And they exchanged the glory of God for, uh, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, the birds and the four-footed animals and the crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And I emphasize worshiped and served because we're going to talk about what worship is, and we're kind of trying to deal with it all real quick. And this is important. These two ideas always go together. Worshiped and served. The creator, creature rather than creator. Notice that when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, worshiping and serving creation is the inevitable outcome. God doesn't give another option. When we reject worship of the true God, we will worship and serve things that have been created. All right? Does that make sense? Okay. It's not a matter of if you worship, it's a matter of which God you worship. By the testimony of Scripture, then, you know, I'm not going to debate an atheist and say you're not an atheist, but, you know, there are no, there's no one who really has no God. 
Everyone is worshiping and serving something. So I hope that I, uh, I've hoped to establish clear biblical support for the reality that all people worship and serve something. But why? We can't help but worship because we were created to worship. I said that at the beginning. God has created us as worshipful beings. God created us for the purpose of worshiping Him. He created us for lives of obedience and service and praise. This is the purpose for which we are created. If you know, obviously, the first catechism, I refrain from putting it in my notes, but I, the first catechism is what is the chief end of man? What is the ultimate purpose of man? And it's to first to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is our purpose. So we created as worshipful beings. <clears throat> but there's a problem. And the problem is sin. Sin has warped the purpose for which we were created. It's caused man, caused you and me to rebel and to worship other things. And we can't reprogram ourselves. That's why we need Jesus Christ. We were created to worship something. We were created to worship Christ, but sin perverts that. So, man cannot help but worship something because that's what he's been designed to do. Since this is true, and I'm not spending a lot of time trying to establish this, I know, but since this is true, how does this affect what our view of worship is? If we were created to worship, and all men worship, how do those two realities affect our view of what worship is. To say it a different way, when we think about worship, we often will think about what we do here on Sunday. Or we'll think of a, a Spotify playlist that we've made. And those aren't wrong. Those aren't, corporate worship is, obvi- I think, I would say, t- say, is the highest expression of our worship. But if someone can worship his own belly or a God that's unknown to him, it forces us to grapple with the reality that worship goes way beyond just what we do here on, in a service on a Sunday morning. Does that make sense? If we're acknowledging that, we're, that men can worship things they don't know, their own bellies, it changes our definition of what worship is. Or it expands it. I guess I wouldn't say it changes it, but it expands it. It should expand it. Notice that in two of the four passages we read earlier, I think they're, um, I think it was Exodus and Romans. Two of the passages we read from earlier, worship is paired, it's linked to service. So in describing the human condition of rebellious mankind, Paul says that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they've worshiped and served the creature, rather than the creator. This is helpful to realize. This means that worship goes beyond just singing into this idea of service. Who you serve is who you worship. They go together. It is right that we sing and glorify the Lord with songs and with prayers. Um, these are the things we think of when we think about praise and worship on Sunday morning, right? Songs are prayers set to melody. We think about these things when we think about worship, but these things are external. There are, they are the things that, 
you can observe and hear yourself and other people can observe and hear for themselves. This is what we would call the external expression of worship. But of course, the words that we speak and the hands that we raise must be motivated by hearts that love God and that desire to serve God. A heart that is overwhelmed with gratitude for the work of Jesus Christ and who wants to live a joyful life in service in his kingdom. So at the beginning of this morning, I said that um, I talked about the fact that there can be those here that you know, sing and raise their hands, but it's not true worship. This is what I'm trying to get at. There are the external expressions, which I'm not downputting. I'm not putting down. They are important, and they're commanded. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Those are external expressions of our worship. They come out of a heart that has to be rejoicing in the goodness of God and what he's done, though, or else it's, 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 it's vain, it's empty. We have to have both. But there is an external expression of worship. Psalm 150, the last psalm, ends with this bold exclamation. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But then in Matthew 15, Jesus is quoting, and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So we are to praise the Lord. We are to lift our hands. We are to shout joyfully to the rock, our Redeemer. External things. We are to do them. But we are also to do them with right hearts. That's internal. That's what Jesus is addressing when he said, people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. If we're raising our hands, and if we're singing the songs, but our hearts are far from God, our worship means nothing. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's an indictment on ourselves, right? It, it displeases God. It's empty, but it also incurs God's anger. It's not good. We need both. We need both. Okay, so to recap, because this is by way of launching us for the next 20 minutes into talking about corporate worship. I don't want to just jump into corporate worship without laying any of these ideas to help guide us. Worship is inescapable. We will all worship. Every man worships. We are created to worship and we'll worship someone or something. As Christians, we are called to worship God alone. And by worship, I mean both the external, but the internal and the service of our lives, right? Worship and serve. It's not just singing. We are explicitly told to praise God and to worship Him in joyful, exuberant, exuberant external ways in many passages, way too many to work through. We'll talk about that more in a second. And our external worship is important, but without the heart and the life that's given to the Lord's service, worship is empty. It's vain, and it doesn't please God. Okay, so as a recap, do you feel like we've just gone through a whole lot of stuff? <laughs> Jonathan, can you repeat the five points of the recap for us? <laughs> Jonathan never is willing to teach for me again, ever. <laughs> okay, 
So it's, it's inescapable. Everyone worships. We're to worship God alone. And worship must, must be external and internal. Okay. I want to spend the remainder of our time thinking about corporate worship. What we do when we gather as a church. When tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 13. And he says this, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's his response to Satan. Our worship is directed at one person only, and that person is the true God. That's Exodus. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven image. Have no idols. Now, in that sense, the command to worship is entirely aimed at God. It's entirely oriented toward God. It's vertical. We aren't to worship anything around us. We are to worship God alone. We come to worship services to sing the praise and the glory of the true God. And not anything else or anyone else in all creation. We're not glorifying anyone else or anything else. Now, having said that, having said that, when we gather, it is corporate worship. We are worshiping together. And I make the point to say, yeah, we are worshiping God. And I do highlight that. That is obvious and maybe not even necessary to say here, but we, need to, we worship God alone. But some would suggest that we should be so full of thoughts only, only about God that we, in an optimal situation, don't even have any awareness of what's going on around us, that, that it's just us and God, like, you know, just like tunnel vision right to the throne. And this is just simply wrong. This is not what the Scripture teaches. So I'm now trying to deal here with this big idea of corporate worship and some things that are misconceptions, I'd say wrong thinking, about what we do when we gather. We worship God alone, but it is corporate worship. Look around you. See all these faces? We're worshiping with those people. And what more can we say about corporate worship? Well, we're going to say a few things. As we worship God, we come not as individuals, but as a congregation, as a body of believers, as the bride of Christ, as a local section, manifestation, portion of the bride of Christ. Worship should strengthen our love for God and for our fellow believers. Actually, even in the very act of worship, God calls us to serve one another. Do you think of why I might... Can, can you think of any scripture that might back up what I'm saying there? In the act of worship, yes, we are only worshiping God. We're not looking around and praising anyone else. But we are actually... We're not, it's not tunnel vision just to God and we're trying to block out everything around us. We are serving one another as we worship God. Can you think of a, a scripture that would make this clear? Are you clear? Okay, yeah, that, that's a great verse. Yeah, that's, that, that's the two great commandments. Or are you itching your nose? If you're itching your nose, that's fine. I, I just saw it. Which is your spiritual act of 
okay, yes, uh, that verse and, and hymns, teaching, and other elements of worship must be done for the strengthening and the building up of the church. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 26, right? This is what Paul says. In worship, God does call us to think about one another as well. We should see that the, the rich don't get all the good seats at the table. At communion, we should make sure that every believer is included, right? Like there are, what I'm addressing here is there is this idea that it's just us and God alone and we should get rid of every distraction around us. No, I'm trying to make the, the argument that corporate worship is corporate worship. We are together and God purposed it that way and we should enjoy it and we have some work to do with each other, right? I think I'll be able to dry this out a little bit more in ways that are um, not so th theoretical. Um, <clears throat> there are many things, past and present, throughout history that seek to undermine the idea that our worship is corporate, either by seeking to promote distinctions between various types of people or people groups, or by promoting the idea of it's just me alone with Jesus, that sort of mentality in worship. Have you guys ever heard, am I, am I speaking to things that you guys have never heard of? Have you ever heard of, the, heard of people talk about worship as this, like, just this experience, me alone with Jesus, and that's, I mean, that's like the pinnacle, right? right. Like the mountaintop experience right there, right? I, in fact, I've heard people say, I, I only go to the mountain, the, the nature, to worship because it's just me and God there, like, like that is the creme de la creme, you know, just you and God, and it's, you know, it's, it's elevated by the very way they speak about it, but is it really? That's what I'm trying to address. Like, what does the scripture actually say about worship, right? Um, so there are many things throughout history and today that seek to undermine the idea that corporate worship is, is the creme de la creme, actually. Corporate worship, together with the body of Christ, just like it's going to be in heaven. That, that's, that is the ultimate glory. Okay, so... Um, what might some examples of this be? Well, I'm just going to go through a few. A couple of modern ones. Loud music that reassures everyone that no one around you can hear you. So you can sing because the music is so loud that no one is going to hear your terrible voice. So sing. Right? And I play electric guitar. But that, that have you ever heard that? It's out there, folks, all right? <laughs> Mr. James, I see you nodding. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Actually, actually, what, so what, what I do, and this is, this is just, <laughs> this, is my, this is my thought on it. Actually, I want exuberance, and I've always tried. I, uh, we, the band does not try and be meek and mild and gentle. I, I try and shoot for a very... I try and shoot for range, but actually what I like to shoot for is to push the congregation to have to sing loud and to hear each other. Does that make sense? I think the congregation, I believe that people should sing and sing strongly. So when it comes to keys, like vocally, and when it comes to how loud we are, yes, there are times where I tell you, you gotta, I'm gonna give you number two pencils if you don't settle down. <laughs> but actually, I don't want, there are obviously songs that should be meek and gentle and quiet, or a cappella, or just piano. 
And there are songs that should be exuberant, like Clap Your Hands, All You People, and, uh, and some other songs. But my goal often is to not, ma- not cover over the congregation, but actually goad them to sing loudly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I believe both those things are necessary. So, loud music that masks the congregation, where the pastor says, rest assured, no one's listening to you. You can sing. You and God. You know, he'll, he'll be the only one that hears you. Or, dark lighting that shrouds everything. It just gives you this little intimate set. Now, I'm not saying that every time, if we had dimmers in the sanctuary and we ever turn them down, it's a sin. But I'm saying there are, there are philosophies that guide these ways of thinking, and they're not right. They're not biblical. They don't... They don't elevate congregation in corporate worship, and we need to. The Bible does. Okay, Um, going back in time, the Latin Mass, what do you think that did? It kept people out, right? My dad just spoke about that a few weeks ago. He said that sometimes even the, the priests wouldn't know what they were saying. They're memorizing it, but whether or not the priests knew, the congregation didn't. Or the Lord's Supper. Over time in history, I'm not going to go into it, but it degenerated down into something that due to the length of the process or due to the proper preparation for the process, one's ability to come to the supper was basically, over time, choked off to only being those that were involved, the priests and those that were involved with the church were the only ones that got communion on any sort of regular basis. Right? So what I'm saying is this idea of corporate worship is being, is being attacked. There's divisions. There's these people, and then there's these people. But we're not in it all together. There's a divide. There are other things. Um, and uh, honestly, like, okay, I just want to say this about communion. Um, today, I don't think we think as much about communion um, in this sense. But communion, the Lord's Supper it was and is radical in its ability to bring people together. You think about it. That is the only table. The Lord's Supper is the place where those that have been sinned against and those that have sinned sit at the same table. It's the only place where slaves and slave owners would be forced to sit at the same table. You understand what I mean about corporate worship? That's for a reason. I don't think we always think about those things because we don't deal with that in our church. Well, praise God for that. But, but it, there's radical ideas, and what the Lord's Supper did is, it, and does is radical. Okay, we could talk more about that, but I'm running out of time. Um, complex singing that excludes those who aren't committed to coming to weekly practices cuts off at corporate worship. There are churches that we respect and love that are so committed to complex harmony that they literally exclude people. I mean, I'm just trying to point at various things. Um, different types of services tailored to your preference. Hey, we got traditional. Hey, we got contemporary. Hey, we got a blend. Hey, we got a brass section. Hey, we got Saturday evenings for those of you. I mean, like I'm saying, all these things serve to undermine this idea of corporate worship, together worship, where we all are worshiping one God, but we're doing it together, and we're ministering to each other as a part of it. <clears throat> I was at a church a couple weeks ago where they make a huge deal out of 
the band being at the back of the room. And I, frankly, honestly, like I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want that for our church, but I don't care. You know what I mean? I only care because they care so much about it. I mean, that's the only thing that I care about. You know, that's the thing they want to talk about. Does your church musician, you know, they have this idea that anyone at the front, except for the pastor, is a distraction to your worship of God. You understand what I'm saying? A piano player at the front. Oh, we can't have that because it's distracting. You should only be thinking about God. Well, we should only be worshiping God. Obviously, that's true. But like these ideas actually hurt our understanding and our commitment and our love and appreciation for corporate worship. You guys with me? I'm trying to throw different examples out there aimed at different types of churches. Okay. <clears throat> um, now, how do, uh, what about us? You know, I hit everybody but us. Whew. No. I was thinking about this last night because, like, the point is us, right? Um, I actually think in our church, I was thinking about um, how many kids we have in our services and the blessing of that. But I was thinking actually um, with a view, do we worship with a view to those around us that we have some responsibility to them or not? Like if the view is, oh, it's just me and God, you know, and, and, and tunnel vision right there. And your kids are being a huge, nasty distraction to everyone around you. You're doing a disservice. And you have a responsibility to train your children to worship and with you, one, so you don't want to fail to train your own children, but you also have a service to those, a responsibility, like corporate worship is sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to, to strengthen and encourage the church and to worship God. That's what Paul says a couple of different times in his epistles, all right? So if, our, if my kids are being hellions in the pews or going, getting up to go to the bathroom every five minutes, we are, we are actually hurt, disserving those around us. That, that's one area where I'd say we should all think and shore up our commitments to corporate worship. Like we have a responsibility to those that we love that are sitting around. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever take it. Noah's potty training, right? And so three times yesterday he went number two in his underwear. And last Sunday I went out with him because he's potty training. So I'm not saying you can't take a kid out. <laughs> a couple of moms are... So I will take my son, but what I'm saying, you understand what I'm saying, okay? Okay, man, I'm going to cut all the stuff from the beginning for the next time, because this is, this is the stuff we really should talk about. Okay, so worship is corporate. Worship is humble. Worship is humble. What is the most common response in the Bible when somebody comes face-to-face -face with the Lord of glory? Fall on your face. Adam hit himself. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, falls, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Moses, falling down, place your on his holy ground. The people, the, the elders in Revelation before the throne, falling down, casting their crowns before the Lord. Worship, worship is humble. When it, when it comes to our worship, it must be humble. And it must be humble throughout. We need to have humble hearts. We need to have actions that are humble. And I was thinking, we want a, we want a building that's humble, right? 
We, like, humility needs to gird our worship in every, in, every, in every part. So, we have a prayer of confession, right? That's pretty normal for those of us that have been here a while, but it's not normal unless I'm in a Catholic church at other, when, I, when I go and visit other churches. We kneel, and sometimes I hope the concrete hurts our knees to remind us that our hearts need to be humble and that it hurts our pride to be humble, but we need to be humble. So we confess our sins to God, right? That's a, that's a liturgical element. That's a part of the service where we're humble. Um, we come boldly, but we come humbly. And I, I, I don't want to say humility in the sense that we don't have any boldness. Esther came before her husband, and she was bold because of her faith and her status as his wife, and yet she had great fear and humility in coming because the man she came before was powerful. So we need to come with humble hearts, and we need to come with humble bodies. And can you think of some actions in worship that are humble, that cause humility? Anybody? Okay, wonderful. Yeah, singing loudly with your voice, whatever you think of your voice. Singing loudly, great. Something else. Come on, man, the clock's running down. I gotta, yes. Okay, letting your, wor- your children worship loudly, right? I, you know, the, 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 yeah. The best example to me in this church of singing is Aoife. You know? And, and there have been times in my pride where I've wondered, what are the people? She's next to a family that's brand new, you know? And in my pride and sin, I'll think, oh, I wonder what they think. And then I think, shame on me, you know? Like that is, the, she is setting the bar in terms of expression and humility in worship. And she's helping us to be humble. So we need to thank God for people like Aoife. Raising our hands, shouting. I hear, I, you know, you know, I ask my kids at the table, what do you think it means when it says shout to the Lord? And you know what they said? Ah! <laughs> do you have a better answer? <laughs> there are times where I hear shouting in the church when we sing about shout, And, you know, we're tempted to say, I- I'm glad you said raising your hands or singing loudly. Because actually, I'm saying that worship needs to be humble. So often, people look at all these things and say that's pride. All throughout your life, people will accuse you of pride when you're actually being humble. Listen, I just went to two churches that were completely stoic. And I think they were godly churches, but not a, I mean, there wasn't even a shoulder shake, you know, let alone a hand raise. And, and it and, and look at, like somebody might say I'm proud because I'm singing loudly and I'm raising my hands. And my kids are. But you know what? I'm not. I'm fighting my pride because I don't want to do it. But I believe the Bible says to. And do, does my reasoning go a lot further than that? No. You know what I mean? Like it just says to do it. So I do it. Um, but our worship has to be humble, okay? Uh, we could talk about David and dancing before the ark. We could, we could, oh, yeah, okay. What? 
No, I didn't rip my shirt off because we're Presbyterian and everything is to be done decently and in order. <laughs> and the order of that is right before bed. <laughs> okay, um, it's corporate, it's worship, and uh, it, it's, it's humble. And we'll, we're just going to end with two quick things then, two quick ideas. It's dangerous. Worship is dangerous. It's not safe. A few weeks ago, I was standing on the edge of the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, looking down 3,000 feet. And you know what? The power of that gorge, or that, that canyon, took my breath away and made me afraid. When we come before God, it is not cavalier. We are coming before our Father. So I'm trying to address a lot of things like, yeah, we're loved. Like Esther, she, she had the status of a wife. We have the status of sons. And yet, we're coming before the greatest power in the universe. The, the, I mean, that's, that's so, so pathetic. I mean, the power that created the universe, right? And I feel like Louis Giglio up here, you know? And here's this picture of the Milky Way galaxy and Jesus facing it. No. <laughs> Coming to worship is dangerous. Hophni and Phineas were put to death for doing things in worship that were wrong. Uzzah, in transporting the ark back to Israel, was struck down for, for handling the holy things in a way that was not holy. And I want to say, no one ever dies today as a result of bad worship, do they? What? When? What, 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 how, why would you say yes? We read it every month, and I hope it sticks out to us. 1 Corinthians 11. If anyone eats or drinks without discerning the body and blood, he drinks judgment on himself. For this reason, many are weak and ill, and some have died. And praise God, no one has, to my knowledge, has ever died as a result of partaking unworthily here, at least to my knowledge. And yet it happens, right? That's what God's Word says. Worship is dangerous. And I wanted to end with, and we'll just... There's more that could be said, but worship is also glorious. It's not just dangerous. It's wonderful and glorious. It is, it is, it is, it's a foreshadowing of the, the feast of the supper of the Lamb of Heaven. It is, I hope that it, it's dangerous, but it is the most wonderful thing that you look forward to every week. I, you, know, you understand what I'm, I'm trying to counter, I'm trying to say it's not just, it's also wonderful and glorious. It's what we were created to do, and it's what we're going to do for all of eternity. And so we should rejoice in it, humbly, with exuberance, all these things that don't necessarily feel like they should fit together. That's what worship is. Does that make sense? We are practicing for heaven. We are participating in something that's heavenly. Scripture says that in worship, Jesus is with us in a special way. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he is in our midst. And he's interceding for us. We're out of time. Yeah. Are you referring to worship in the sense of corporately or? Now I'm speaking to the idea of corporate worship specifically. When, after I got done with all that stuff in the beginning. Well, but I think what you, I think what you said initially was true in that our, our whole lives are worship. That's true. And that's, I think, more our practice for heaven is also our lives of worship as well. That is true. 
But corporate worship is the highest expression of what heaven is, right? Corporate worship together. And so let's rejoice in it, and let's give it our all, because God is worthy of it, all right? Would you stand and pray for us? Great. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.